This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale. Welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted podcast. We've got a special guest on the podcast today, Adam Greenberg, the CEO and founder of Unu, as well as native San Franciscan and neighbor of mine growing up. Um, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, native San Franciscan is not something that uh, I hear much anymore, but I guess since we grew up together, it makes sense. At this rate, there's going to be no more children born in San Francisco. As far as I can tell, everybody who lives there is in their 30s, is single, and is just like holding out. But anyways, <laughs> I digress. Um, Adam, tell us a little bit about your kind of personal upbringing. Um, we'd love to understand, like, tell us about your parents. Tell us about where you grew up. Um, tell us about how that shaped you a little bit. We'd love to kind of hear the origin story of Adam. Yeah, uh, good question. I, I actually don't think I could, I will do my best to answer that, but most of the things that I think I was brought up that are built into me and automatically into my psyche, I probably don't even, I'm not even aware of where they came from, right? We're very much the products of our surroundings and I don't even remember my fourth birthday. So I have no idea what, what, what led up to me as a small child, but from a parent perspective and from an upbringing perspective, I'm a, uh, son of a botanist father and an immigrant mother from Egypt. Um, and they had to leave in the sixties cause they were Coptic Christian and it wasn't a good scene for Coptics there. And, uh, that ended up leading to my parents meeting at Oregon, the university of Oregon. And they, <laughs> yep. Robbie went to Oregon. Uh, so they moved back down to San Francisco where my dad's from and uh, they both work full time. So being a mostly only child, I'd say I spent a lot of time with people, right? I had, uh, you know, Carrie, Stephanie, Sandra, and a bunch of other friends that grow up with always hanging around being, uh, led to be a less solitude, less solitary upbringing as an only child, but ultimately taking the bus alone, forced independence based on the fact that you had two parents working full time. Uh, inside of an inner city of San Francisco. I mean, back then when we grew up there, you know, you couldn't wear blue or red in the mission, or at least you were supposed to, you're not supposed to remember that. Uh, and so nowadays uh, the mission's considered a great destination for people to start companies and foodies and right. So it's, it's changed a lot. The city's changed a lot. Right. And so I feel like being a product of a, of a, an immigrant from the work ethic. My father's a botanist who sort of has that keen eye on plants and his logical thinking. And then you combine that with a city surrounding 
that spent a lot of my time sort of nature's my church. So I spent a lot of time in you know, camping growing up. And that pretty much makes up who I am today in a basic nice. level. And other than that, it's just hanging out with friends and, you know, the, the 10, 20 people closest around me that led to, to who, who I became. I like it. I like it. You're being humble. Um, you spend quite a bit of time building your company, but we'll get to that. So you moved to, you moved to, despite your parents' better judgment of going to Oregon, you decided to go to University of Washington. We'll forgive you for that. Um, you spent the last, since college, really in Seattle, um, worked at Amazon for a little bit. We'll, we'll come back to that as well. But you talked a little bit about, um, you know, being a native San Franciscan, you've lived in Seattle. Seattle's changed a lot, I have to imagine, in the last eight years. Like, maybe what's kept you there? Um, and what have been some of the biggest differences you've noticed uh, professionally in Seattle versus San Francisco? Ooh. Uh, so it's sort of a multifaceted question you asked right there. So I'll start with the first one and then end at the differences. But the thing that brought me up to the UW and sort of kept me in Seattle and Amazon really was the idea that I got into, I was into finance and math and in the business program and, and Amazon had a program that actually pulled you out of school. So I was about two years in, maybe three, I can't remember which. And I, got, I pulled myself out of college for temporarily and went to Amazon and then ended up working there for longer than a year uh, ended up being closer to two years and then went back to finish so what I you know being in Amazon and Amazon had a shortage of finance people you just it's a crash course right if seven open recs or six open recs for uh, a finance team and you had three or four people there and you had to hold it down until you can find those recs which never come <laughs> and so uh you just sort of you learn right and to be frank i was probably pretty pretty uh in in retrospect I was, I was really young right so i didn't really know what i was doing with excel i had to teach myself table joins i had to teach myself sql and i was bad at it right i was bad at vba so i'd record my vba as opposed to writing it and then try to edit it out on excel because i just had no idea what I was doing, right? And so I think that sort of big company throwing myself in there at Amazon, not even being done with college was a, a reason for me to to realize how little I knew, right? It was something that that humbled me that there was a bunch of people way smarter and better than me. Pretty much everything at that point. Uh, I, I was pretty uh, demoralizing, if you will. And then having that connection to all these people who were just motivated and seeing them building things I realized it was possible and that's what got me into thinking about ways to build right and when you think about building I could have gone back to San Francisco this is answering your second question and going back to San Francisco I looked at prices I looked at what it cost to live there and I looked at what it cost to hire and I didn't have the street cred to go out and raise a $3 million round on an idea, right? So I was like, okay, this thing's, this is going to be tough. So I just went after the Seattle market because there's a bunch of people. It, it's the most, probably the most underutilized talent market in the country because you have all of these big corporations, Amazon, Expedia, Microsoft, uh, 
Let's see what other public companies, you know, Zulily all the way to Zillow, F5. We can keep right. going. We can play yeah, that. Yeah. That, that so was my territory back in the day. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Right so, now. there's all of this talent there, and they're they don't they only have to do so much if that makes sense, right? So it's a lot of underutilized resources, and, and the fact that a lot of people could do more if they're motivated to do more, could do more if they had an opportunity, and so. And it costs less to do to to work with them. So I went after the Seattle market because it seemed like it was more friendly to somebody who has no idea what they're doing, like me, as opposed to there was a bunch of the bloodbath down in San Francisco where it's very hard to stand out. And so I tried to look at the differences and I, and to describe it even more succinctly. When I went, go to places in San Francisco, people are very welcoming. That was part of the friend group growing up. People were just like, hey, come hang out. In Seattle, when you say, hey, do you want to go do something in an event? You know, some of the first questions you get is, well, who else is going to be there? And at first, I was offended. I was like, what am I, not good enough? And then I realized that was part of the culture, right? And, and that kind of threw me off. And so I think a lot of the other aspects that are different between the two markets that made it clear that I had to go raise in Silicon Valley, at least partially, and raise in San Francisco is because the people who made their money in Seattle, most of them made a lot of their millions not taking lots of risk, right? So Seattle, you, Microsoft minted millionaires of people who took on nine to five jobs because of how big it got, right? So you have the early, you know, the first 50 people, which of course that wasn't nine to five, but at some point, the, the, you have to look at where the people who do the angel investments, who create this ecosystem and where that came from. And Seattle has oil, Seattle has lumber, Seattle has seafood, Seattle has uh, you know, large tech that you could have been you know, employee number 1000 and still made 40 million, right? And so that Amazon, Microsoft, right? So it's a much more conservative mindset culture and so you want to get the people in the company working with you who have, who are invested in that company in a way, but in terms of fundraising, you're not going to get a lot of help in Seattle. That's why there's not that much in terms of people willing to invest, angel investors, that's all changing a little bit, but still that culture is still there compared to when I would go down to San Francisco and I'd spend three months, four months down there talking about this company up in Seattle, people were much more open and receptive to it. And that's why we had people who came in, who were willing to take that bet earlier on than people up in Seattle, right? And that's how we got fuel and initialized and liquid too. And that's a, that's a completely different culture down there than it is up here on that early stage investment. Yeah. And that, that's one of the beauties of the Bay Area, right? I've, I've been here now six, seven years for, for as long as you've kind of started your journey. And it's that mentality of like being unstoppable. Let's just jump in much more receptive, willing to take risk. Not that other parts of the world or even Seattle don't have that, but that's the one beauty I think of the of the Bay Area that makes it a little more unique. Um, I gotta ask, how did how did you start up the entrepreneurship journey, and how did your past experience, whether it's Amazon or something else, um, have an impact? That level of hustle, of willing to take that risk and just bet on yourself, didn't come. Uh, it was not fully fleshed out in me until after Amazon because I didn't feel I had a lot of the autonomy. And there was a moment where uh, credit for work and I saw people taking credit for each other's work and it became very much a, I saw a lot of politics 
and that that was something that I didn't really understand just growing up I was in you know, the, what's the most politics you're going to have in, in a friend group? Like, okay, that's not, that's completely different. And so it was a lot of the little things trying to start a car wash business, trying to start, you know, hustle Pokemon cards, buy and sell trading cards, right? All the little things that you do as a, as a kid combined with a frustration with what I thought was the, the, what I was told was the right path, right? So I was told Hey, you know, I, I was looking at going to consulting. I was interviewing for management consulting, right? I was in the management consulting club, helping people with frameworks and stuff, right? And frameworks are still super helpful. I still use them for some things, but I, it was definitely a demoralizing moment uh, when I realized that everything wasn't as green as I thought it was and easy to, you know, seize the day. And so that those two combinations led to, well, then if I don't like it, and I, I forget the conversation with who, someone says, well, then if you don't like it, just do it the way you'd want to do it. And so I, I went into it eyes wide open, you know, you have that honeymoon period and then you go in and then you come, you go down to that depressing, demoralizing, like, why isn't this going faster? And then come, you come out of it and then you just sort of normalize the chaos and just accept the fact that startups are a shit show. And as soon as you recognize that startups are a shit show and you just need to be trending the right direction and, and you just need to make sure that the shit show goes right and falls and falls up as opposed to falls down. It, it's really fascinating to see how much mo morale and momentum can be affected just by, by normalizing and willing to accept chaos. How do you do that? How do you normalize and accept chaos? like culturally as a leader repetition probably so i mean i had a team meeting today where the first thing i said when someone said they were frustrated with uh, uh frustrated with an interaction with the customer is like, it was like and it wasn't rational it was emotional that the, and the first thing they said i said back to them because it was in a big public setting is startups are a shit show you know you just keep to, you keep reminding people of the same patterns and the same if you will, truisms that helps people stay grounded that we're not that unique, right? We can be unique in what we're going after. We can be unique in where we're our why. We can be unique in the family that we are at this one place and one time inside of humanity's sort of pattern matching that this is the, the right time to be doing this solution for the right industry. But in terms of the process and in terms of the fact that someone, no one has ever done this exact thing we're doing before, makes people feel much more one you feel much more ownership over what you're doing because you're you're leading the way i there's no playbook for this some of it little things you do there are playbooks but there's no exact playbook for this exact company in this exact industry and so you try to borrow as much you can from other people who've made mistakes so that you don't have to make those and then you have to go make as many mistakes as you can as fast as you can and, and, and as, as Jeff calls it at, at uh, Amazon, the revolving doors, right? Just make sure you can come back from those mistakes. If, and the ones that you can't come back from, spend extra time deciding and making sure you're doing those ones right. So it's knowing which ones to deliberate, which decisions to deliberate and spend more time on. Those are the ones, those key decisions, as opposed to trying to do a one size fit all for all decision-making. And so that normalization of chaos and reminding people of the fact that startups are a shit show and that it's okay and that everyone's we're all in this together 
that's how you normalize is you do it as a group and you do it, you make people feel supported. How do you decide what not to normalize and what to normalize? Because the other part about it, right? Sometimes I think you need to have a little bit of empathy, right? To understand where people are coming and hearing them out. Like, how do you, the tough part is, I, I don't think you can always, it's not, it's not binary sometimes, right? Like, hey, we always have to be this way. So how do you make that distinction as a leader? There's no right way to do this. The way I do it is I just ask myself, is this going to matter to me in six months? Is this exact decision going to make it? Am I going to remember or regret this decision six months from now? The answer is no. Yeah. The answer is yes. I'm paying attention. Yeah, I, in a much like smaller vein, I've started to try to think about things just in my life in, the, in those terms, like, especially like when it comes to outsourcing stuff and like paying somebody to do something or something like that, and not just laboring over a decision, but making it. It's obviously different as a CEO. One thing, one thing I'm interested in, Adam, is, you know, you knew your company has been on a journey, like you guys started out kind of inspired from a botanist perspective, perhaps by your father, um, focused on greenhouses and uh, growing plants of all shapes, sizes, colors and types. And I think you guys were focused a little bit more on like lighting in the beginning, on like the, the kind of hardware and infrastructure behind the lighting of greenhouses. But um, you made a decision during the journey to basically shift the focus towards software. Can you tell us a little bit about like on the journey you guys have been on over the last seven years, how you approached this kind of decision to quote unquote, and it's kind of a cliche term, but, but pivot, right? And how you landed on that, how you executed on it. Anyone who tells you that, that they figured out what they're going to do and the startup was going to be, and the company was going to build in a straight line and it was exactly as it went as they planned is usually lying to you. <laughs> so we started off by building ultrasound sensors and cameras inside of these lights. And we thought it'd be cool to have connected lights where you can change the spectrum, high quality light source. You could see your plants. It was the perfect place to see your plants right above. And we were doing really well and we had a big order and things were going the right direction. And we did this huge order, big capital outlay. We bought all these bulbs and the entire batch went out. I think it was hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of lights went out at the same time to all these customers. And within two weeks, all the bulbs failed. We went to our bulb supplier and like, what happened? Like, oh, it must've been lower quality cords. <laughs> and we, we were just like, well, we're, how fast to make more? And they're like, it'll be a month. And so as you, in, inside of agriculture, you can't have a month downtime. And so there was a whole issue where we had supplier issues from a high demand product combined with a bunch of people who said, I'd love to buy this light with this camera system, but can I just buy the camera system without the light? And of course, at first few times I heard it, I was like, that's dumb, right? You know, you go through those different phases and you have that sunk cost feeling, right? The, the sunk cost fallacy of everyone, that the pain of change is you'd rather just keep doing what you're doing because you've already spent a bunch of effort on it. <laughs> and so we... We ignored the first few times we heard that. And then you start to listen and it's eventually just punches you in the face. And you're like, okay, a lot of people are asking for this. And we just got punched in the face by a supplier. We should consider looking at this. And so then we looked at what it would look like without a light. And then we built a demo. And I think the, the ultimate 
pivot point came from when there were three or four of us in a room and we worked with the designer to build out a demo of what the world would look like if we were to do this. And it was all, there was no code, right? It was just design with a narrative, with a story, with a user story. And it was just, there was a, and you know, we didn't pretend it was code. We just went up to people and then we went to growers and, and operators. And these are, you know, million square foot operators and people who grow things like hibiscus and petunias. And we just showed them this seven minute demo and they said, what do you think? And they're like this, I think the exact quote from the first one, I'll never forget. He goes, that is Star Trek. And of course me being the age that I am, I was like, huh, I haven't heard about, haven't thought about Star Trek in a long time, but sounds like it's far out. Sounds like you like it. And he's like, oh yeah, I'd buy this in a heartbeat. So we knew we were onto something there. The demo made sense. We had this boat anger of a, of a lighting hardware component. And so we just said, well, why don't we do both? And then very quickly, everyone got very excited about the lighting. And then in, in early stage companies, right? Cash is king and focus is queen, right? You, you, you can't run out of money. If you run out of money, you're screwed. And also stay focused, right? So, and I, 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 every single time I think I'm focused, uh, one, of the, one of my teammates keeps reminding me, you know, everyone's focus needs focus. I love that comment, right? Your focus needs focus which means you just need to keep iterating and focus and focus and focus. And so I think we got a few more months in and the lighting business was essentially became a distraction and wasn't willing to admit it because I poured so much time and effort into it. And then within a few months, you know, eventually you have to face the cold, hard facts of reality. Otherwise, you know, what are you doing? You got to keep changing. If change is constant, it's less painful. And so thus we got rid of the lighting business and it's just focused on the, the camera business and just went after it full fledged and uh, it, it happened in probably three or four stages and then it all of a sudden what's also interesting is the people who were looking at investing in our market who didn't like the idea of a lighting business and that hardware heavy but like cameras a lot of the people who were interested in investing in the ag industry started getting interested and started returning my calls so there was also this reverberation and selection bias where i would talk to them about this camera and this imaging and this computer vision, their eyes would light up. And then I talked to them about lighting and they just looked depressed. Like, why am I talking to you, right? And so there's also the confirmation bias that comes from the people around you that are looking to write you checks that then leads to what also gets pushed and innovated on. So it was both a mixture of customers and the confirmation bias of VCs. Since we're talking about investing, looking at your background, I see that you're, you invest on the side. So, how, what do you look for when you're investing in startups? Like, what's that viewpoint when you're, uh, obviously you're not writing the checks that VCs are writing, but when you're in the reverse scenario? I'm not a professional investor by any means, right? I, I support my friends and people I, I like that I always bet on people, right? I always ask myself what I bet against this person. And in some regards, it's a vote of confidence for people, right? So it's not like something I'm not a, I don't sit there and I don't have a fund. I'm not a professional investor in that regard, but certain people who you want to give them a little push and a little vote of confidence and you want to share in their upside. I look at it as sort of a, it's, it, you're really, the only thing I look at is the people. It's really all that matters to me. Everything else is sort of an externality. And if you have a, if you have somebody who 
you meet and you're like, wow, that person is like anything that person touches is probably going to be successful. That's a person you should bet on. Right. And so you just get to know people and you sort of have different groups that are kind of like the, the rehab groups for, for CEOs and founders where, you know, we'll all sit around at a dinner, at least in the old days, we'd sit around at a dinner and have, and have a couple of drinks and start talking about all of our problems and issues. And you start, there's a lot of patterns, but you also figure out and you also get to know people who are really just on top of their A game and you want to support them. And yeah, there's, and I think there's, forget who said it, but there, it's also an, an asymmetric trade, right? So the downside is you lose it all. The upside is 10, hundred X. And so, uh, sure I could make it, but there's not a lot of, uh, let's call it, um, I don't spend any time on that. It's just the people that I know and would bet on, right? A, a good example is if, if Robbie called me up and he's like, Hey, I'm going to go start a company. I'd be like, great, let me support you. Right. I, I, he could, he could literally be starting another dog walking company. And I would have been like, sure. Because it's, it's Robbie that you want to bet on. Not, not just based on some idea because ideas can change and pivot and you want to bet on an operator who's going to be smart enough to pivot, not be beholden to an idea. Robbie, I don't know how much you paid Adam. I, I, I don't know how much we, you paid this guy to a speak, lot. speak, I paid him speak, a lot. speak these terms because I, I'm not seeing any money behind this podcast from Adam. You know, it's, it's all uh, our, our hard earned uh, hours and energy, but Adam, in all seriousness, I, I, I am uh, by no means a professional investment, but I've done a couple of angel investments and the common denominator has always been to double down on the people. Uh, so I think that's a very, very good tactical tip. Uh, and hopefully we don't lose our money because I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> but uh, what, the one question we absolutely love to ask, and this has been an amazing, uh, amazing, amazing, amazing show. And I appreciate your candor, but also being just your, super truthful about your lessons and, and kind of how you've gone about um, doing the things that you've been doing. Our last question that we'd love to ask everybody is if you could go, there's one thing you can tell yourself, like, what would that, what would that one advice be? I think there's two that would resonate, that would matter a lot for me, right? This is very much custom to me as somebody who likes people a lot. I like, I enjoy helping people and I enjoy seeing people get excited, right? You, I love getting people to bring them to water and showing them something fun or cool and watching them drink. Right. And then all of a sudden they grow. And you know, that, that, that sort of process of working with being around people, both socially, both business wise, but you can't please all people. And I think growing up, I always just wanted to be helpful and, and please a lot of people, everybody, right. Just because why not? Uh, you have time. Time isn't, time is an unlimited in time is an unlimited resource until you grow up and it's not. And so that led that I would tell my younger self is you, you don't need to do that. Just focus on what makes you happy and double down on the people that make you happy. You don't need to please everybody. And then the second thing I would tell myself, cause I, I, I couldn't pick between the two is embrace the suck, right? The chaos, the concept of enjoying the journey more, enjoying enjoy the chaos enjoy all the shit show that it is because that's what you really wanted and too many times you get there 
and it's not exactly how you imagine it, you've, you've missed expectations. So it's less about the expectations, try to remove those as much as possible and just enjoy the chaos and the journey because you're doing something and you're about to embark on something that will shape you as a person forever. And I, and I don't think I embraced it till later in life in a way that I, uh, I should have, because I think I would have been, I would have learned more faster. Thanks for that, Adam. I couldn't have said it better myself. For folks tuning in, we want to thank Adam for jumping on the show and sharing his wisdom. If you want to connect with him, we'll put his contact information in the show notes. Um, And I just want to thank you again on behalf of Robbie, myself, and the rest of the, the community for tuning in for another great episode. We'll catch you on the next one. Until then, be well, be safe, and see you next time. This week's episode is brought to you by Oracle NetSuite. Oracle NetSuite, I think, solves a really important problem that a lot of startups, business owners, executives face, which is how do you get the information that you need instantly all in one place? Before we upgraded the Oracle NetSuite at my last startup, it used to take us a lot of time to pull the information reports that we needed for our quarterly investment meeting or the report that we wanted to send to both internal employees as well as stakeholders and shareholders at the end of the month. Upgrade to Oracle NetSuite today so you can get the visibility and control you need over your financials, HR, inventory, and everything you need in one place that you can access instantly. Let NetSuite show you how they'll benefit your business with a free product tour at netsuite.com slash scale. Schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash scale. That is netsuite.com slash scale.